This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Should electric car users have to pay an extra tax? States and territories want them to. They're worried about losing the money they get from drivers who buy fuel in the years ahead as there's a big shift towards EVs. But Australia's highest court has made a really big decision. It says states cannot tax electric car users. It's unconstitutional. We're going to be finding out exactly what the High Court has said, what this means for the future, where it leaves us. Also coming up, we're going to explain some massive dairy strikes in Australia that is seeing valuable milk poured down the drain. First, though, we're checking in with Gaza and a horrific explosion overnight. Hack. Hundreds of Palestinians are dead after a hospital in Gaza was struck by a massive blast. Parts of the hospital are on fire. There are lots of children whose bodies were laying on the floor. We condemn any indiscriminate attacks and targeting of civilian infrastructure, including hospitals. We categorically deny any claims by Hamas or anybody else that this was an Israeli strike. Civilians must be protected and humanitarian aid must be allowed in. On Triple J. Yeah, this explosion at a hospital in Gaza that's left hundreds of people dead. We know that, you know, the hospital uh, was filled with patients, people with nowhere to go. It's the deadliest single thing that's happened in the past week and a half. Both Israeli and Palestinian officials are denying responsibility for the attack. Each side's blaming each other. Whoever's responsible, the result is devastating. And maybe you've been seeing the pictures, videos out of Gaza. The humanitarian crisis is deepening hour by hour. Every day, it just seems to be getting so much worse. It's so hard to get updates from people there as well. Like, Hack's been in touch with a lot of people, but they may not have access to reliable internet. There's a constant fear for safety. Even charities are struggling to get hold of their staff on the ground, as we're about to hear. One of the biggest humanitarian organisations is Médecins Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders. It's an international independent group that's always providing aid wherever there's a natural disaster, a major crisis. Simon Eccleshaw is with MSF. He's here in Australia, but he's been in touch with doctors in Gaza and he's with us now. G'day, Simon. Thanks for coming on, Hack. G'day. Good to be here. What are you hearing from doctors on the ground in Gaza at the moment? What we're hearing is horrific. Uh, MSF is appalled at the level of civilian casualties that have occurred over the last week. The the mass killing of civilians perpetrated by both Hamas in in Israel and now by the Israeli Defence Forces in Gaza. Uh, What we're hearing is that the bombing is relentless, it's indiscriminate and that people have nowhere safe to go. And I imagine it's hard to get information from medical staff who are on the ground. You're trying your best, but it'd be quite difficult. Yes, indeed. Uh, we had better communications last week, but following the call by the Israeli Defence Forces to evacuate the northern part of Gaza, we've had to move many of our international staff to the south, and we've lost contact with the 300 national staff, the local doctors and nurses that work for MSF in Gaza, and it's increasingly difficult to find out whether they're able to continue working and what sort of conditions they're experiencing at the hospitals where MSF works. Well, we've already been hearing hospitals in Gaza are at breaking point. We've been hearing that over the past week, but then we saw this massive explosion that has led to hundreds of people being killed, a whole bunch more being injured. What is this specific incident going to mean for civilians who need treatment? 
removed any hope or any capacity for people needing treatment to be able to safely seek refuge and get that treatment in hospitals or health centres or medical facilities. The, as I mentioned before, the, the relentless bombing means that people are uh, afraid to leave their homes and they're unable to seek out medical care, water, food or other essential items. So essentially, the population is under siege, they're being told to leave, but there's no safe passage and no safe place for them to go within Gaza. How are the medical staff themselves surviving? Because we are seeing incredible stories of sacrifice, of risk, of people staying behind to care for civilians, uh, even at great personal danger, with you know food shortages, water shortages. How are the, uh, the medical teams uh, keeping themselves going? It's a very good question, uh, and it, it seems to be a superhuman effort that, that medical staff are making. Indeed, they leave home to go to a hospital or a health clinic to do their work, and they're uncertain as to whether that home will be there when they come back. We've seen uh, fighter jets raising block after block, house after house, through northern uh, Gaza, and the ability of people to, to even do basic functions, to be able to run a simple health clinic or to support a hospital, are now really impossible. And it's because of that that MSF has really had to suspend its activities over the last few days. We're also desperately short of, of medical supplies, of fuel to be able to run the generators, to be able to create electricity for the hospitals. And so right now we're wondering how on earth those hospitals are able to sustain their work and, and are they actually functional without any additional aid and support coming in? This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Simon Eccleshall from Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, about the situation in Gaza at the moment and how difficult it is to get aid to people who need it. Simon, in terms of big international humanitarian disasters, uh, uh, situations like this, is it quite rare to be in a situation where you can't get help to people? Indeed. The situation in Gaza, as we know, was already a chronic emergency. They've been living under siege-like conditions, a blockade, if you like, for the last 15, 16 years. But there were still functioning supply lines. The cutting of those supply lines now for the last 10 days or so is absolutely inhumane. It's a death sentence for people who are in hospitals needing medical care or for families who need access to water uh, food and other essential items. So it's a very inhumane blockade. It is fairly unprecedented. MSF uh, has been worked in Gaza now for more than 30 years, is raising the alarm to say this is entirely unacceptable. It needs to change immediately or else the scale of the humanitarian disaster will be enormous. We're talking about 2.2 million people in Gaza without access to food, water or adequate shelter. There's only so much time they can survive without that additional support. What is the biggest concern from a medical viewpoint at this stage? Uh, there's, there's so many to list, but I'd say the, the biggest concern at the moment is the relentless bombing of, of Gaza that the indiscriminate nature of that bombing is creating thousands of injured civilians. MSF treats trauma, we treat burns, 
we have no capacity at the moment to be able to deal with the massive influx of patients at the hospitals. Hospitals that are designed to maybe accommodate 500 people are seeing thousands, in some cases tens of thousands of people trying to seek shelter and medical attention in those facilities. And this is in an area that the Israeli government has said people must leave. It's very hard to leave an area when you're injured or when you're needing urgent medical attention. All right, well, we'll definitely keep on top of what's going on. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Pass on that information that you're hearing from Gaza. Simon Eccleshaw from Medicine Sans Frontier. thank you very much for joining us on Thank Hack. you. You are listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. We're speaking about the humanitarian crisis in the Middle East. And while all this is playing out, world leaders are scrambling to figure out what to do to stop the bloodshed. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has called for the protection of civilians in Gaza. US President Joe Biden, you might have heard, is heading to the Middle East. He's visiting Israel. But another trip to Jordan where he was going to meet with Arab leaders has been called off. So what's this US presidential trip actually going to achieve? Like, why is Joe Biden going when it's so dangerous? Let's have a chat to an expert. Dr. Michael Green is the CEO of the US Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, and he's with us now. Dr. Green, thanks for coming on Hack. Very happy to join you. What do you think Joe Biden's biggest priority is with this trip? Like, what is he realistically trying to do? I think this was a decision that comes from Joe Biden's uh, heart. Um, it was not a politically easy decision in some ways. He went to Kyiv, which was dangerous, but the U.S. was able to back channel to the Russians to make sure there was no attack on Kyiv when the president was there. But you can't do that with Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, so it's risky physically. It's politically risky because he'll embrace the Israeli government before the world and will own whatever happens next. But at the end of the day, Joe Biden is a resolute supporter of Israel. And I think it's a smart move ultimately. And what he'll achieve is a demonstration of strong personal and, of course, presidential support for Israel. The two U.S. aircraft carrier battle groups are a manifestation of the power the U.S. brings to that commitment. But also it will give them an opportunity in person to convince the Israeli government to be prudent, to defend themselves, to take out Hamas as best they can, but but to be conscious of the and the dangers of wider escalation involving Iran. I'm wondering, though, I mean, things have changed since the trip was first announced. Like, he was supposed to have a meeting in Jordan with Arab leaders. That's been cancelled after this horrible uh, strike on a hospital in Gaza. If Joe Biden's only meeting uh, with Israel, could it have the potential of making things worse? I don't think it'll make things worse. I think by giving his personal commitment at some risk to him, Self and the physical commitment of two U.S. carrier battle groups, I think that gives him the credibility and the leverage to help shape the Israeli response. And so it's a responsible thing to do in that sense. You know, the Arab leaders Joe Biden was going to meet with are no friends of Hamas and want, I'm sure, Hamas taken out of the equation if possible. But it would have been politically uh, extremely difficult for those leaders to meet with Biden after the news of this tragic hospital bombing. What about the bigger idea of a long-term peace settlement? Like, is he going to be trying to keep that alive? I think the long-term play, the long-term strategy has to involve two critical elements that are extremely difficult in the short term, but um, the US and most Israelis will want to return to 
as soon as they can. So the the one that's more immediate is the reconciliation, the normalization of relations between Israel and Gulf states and the Saudi-Israel relationship was the next big prize. And it's very likely that Iran encouraged and armed Hamas to do this to create barriers to Israel and Iran's enemy, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, normalizing relations and aligning more. So the Israelis and Saudis at some point will want to get back to that. The other piece is the two-state solution, which most Israelis would support. Um, Hamas doesn't support it. Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews. So there's no basis for a negotiated process with Hamas at all. But when the war is over, and if it's successful, which I think it will be militarily, then the hard work will be creating conditions for um, a return to the vision of a two-state solution. The trip that Biden's doing, is this about sending a message to Americans as well? Yeah, but I don't think, on this one, I don't think Joe Biden is, is making a cynical political calculation. I think he is instinctively horrified and a strong supporter of Israel. And as I said, there is some risk for him, political and physical, in, in taking this trip. But yes, there is, in the U.S., as in Australia, some anti-Israel sentiment even anti-Semitic sentiment on the far left of politics in the U.S. as well. And I think for the Democratic Party, um, I think Joe Biden wants to show that his party, not just his government, but his party strongly stands with Israel. So there's a bit of domestic politics in the U.S. But I don't think that's the main calculation for Joe Biden on this one. I think this is the Joe Biden who's been in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and traveled multiple times to Israel in the past. I think it's him stepping up for a friend in a very profound and personal way. All right, Dr. Michael Grain from the U.S. Studies Centre, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. We've got lots of opinions on this one. We're going to keep you across this story as it develops over the next few days, over the weekend as well, no doubt, uh, Joe Biden's visit, but also the humanitarian crisis in Gaza as that unfolds. We will be speaking with people on the ground in Gaza in the coming days. All right, let's move on. Hack. 1,400 Victorian workers will walk off the job today in what the United Workers' Union says is the largest dairy strike in Australian history. On Triple J. Yeah, if you love a, I don't know, glass of milk before bed, got some bad news for you. We're being warned that we could be facing a bit of a shortage of some dairy products in parts of the country, mainly milk. Why? What's going on? Well, some factory workers and tanker drivers are striking in Victoria for better pay and conditions. It's meaning that even though the milk is still being produced, it's still, you know, happening on the farms, there's nobody to pick it up and to process it. And it means that dairy farmers are pouring their milk down the drain. April McLennan explains. Yeah, we dumped 14,000 litres yesterday down the drain. No one came to pick up the milk from dairy farmer Justin Johnson's property yesterday, so he had to pour it down the drain. It's because of some big strikes in Victoria. We just think the stupidity of it, wasting premium grade food, and when uh, people in Australia are struggling to put food on the table at the moment, you know, it's just money down the drain and indirectly we have to pay for it, not not um, the milk companies because it comes out of the bottom line of milk companies which hopefully don't return back to the farmers. There's actually two strikes going on. Firstly, some tanker drivers stopped work in Victoria at 3am on Tuesday morning. This meant some farmers who supply milk to a dairy processor called Saputo weren't able to get their milk picked up. It also affected some smaller companies who use the same truck networks to pick up their milk too. Doing shifts at 2, 3, 4 in the morning, but they are the ones that are, quite frankly, overworked. 
Mem Suleiman from the Transport Union says they're fighting for a pay rise and more secure employment. And these guys have been squeezed, they've been pushed from pillar to post and they're looking for a fair deal, something that delivers them the job security they need to, to have a thriving uh, dairy industry moving forward. The workers were not super stoked to see contractors and non-union staff driving some of the milk tankers while they were on strike. While Saputo says it's taken steps to make sure its milk supply won't be impacted. Now 1,400 factory workers who work at four main processes have walked off the job this morning, affecting Saputo, Fonterra, Lactalis and Peter's Ice Cream factories as part of their 48-hour strike action. We're really just trying to get a fair wage increase to combat the crushing cost of living. Factory worker Derek Dent says they've been bargaining throughout this year and they're just chasing a fair wage increase. We're putting it all on the line. We've got our families to think of. Um, we don't want to, to negatively impact the supply chain, but at the end of the day, when words fail, actions have to be taken. So what's all this mean for you? Well, we're being warned it could lead to a shortage of stuff like milk, cheese, yoghurt and even ice cream. And I'm also sympathetic to... You know, the consumers, the, you know, the mums and dads and, the, and the, the grandmas and grandpas that may not be able to purchase their favourite dairy products on the supermarket shelves because of supply chain issues. Aaron Thomas is a founding member of Victorian Dairy Farmers and he reckons the strike hasn't really come at a great time, with heaps of farms in the region at peak milk production after calving season. For some farmers, it's just heartbreaking. You know, you, you work your absolute guts out to produce the milk. You know, some of us, some farms, uh, you know, have had challenging periods, been dry and you're buying feed to feed the cows, your milk's getting made, we're trying to do it the best we can um, and then just to have to dump it, it's just, uh, it's just a waste. You know, there's people in our country, in our communities that are going hungry and we're going to be tipping milk down the drain. Coles has told customers it won't be affected by the strike, but unions say they'll step up their industrial campaign if no deal is reached. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan there, got some messages coming through. Someone says, I just spoke to my brother who is on strike. There's probably not going to be a shortage of cheese because their warehouse is full of the stuff. We may potentially see milk shortages if it does go on for weeks. That's uh, someone's perspective there. Another person says, you know, people in Gaza are starving and in Australia we're tipping milk down the drain. It's unbelievable. We'll keep you updated with this strike action. There's a lot of workers striking at the moment. You may have seen across the country in different areas, supermarket workers and stuff. We're going to be talking a bit about that next week as well. So, We'll have a bit of an update for you. Hack. If we want to have a conversation about road user charges, let's do it. But don't slap on an ad hoc knee-jerk cash grab tax on EVs. On Triple J. Well, if you drive an electric car, massive win for you today. The High Court has ruled that a controversial EV tax in Victoria is unconstitutional and it's got to be scrapped. Now, this impacts other parts of the country too because it means that other states and territories can't introduce a tax exactly like that one. So it's brought up a lot of interesting questions, though, about what's going to happen to taxes once we no longer have petrol cars. And I guess the governments are pretty nervous about missing out. I'm keen to hear what you think about this. Like, do you drive an EV? Uh, have you got thoughts about an EV tax? Message in 0439757555.
You can call in as well, one three hundred o triple five three six. You might not have been across what exactly happened in court today, what the big ruling was. We've got someone, though, who is across it. Joe Lauder, Hack Reporter. Joe, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, no worries. Anytime, Dave. It's my job. You're like, I work here, so (laughs) it's actually fine to come on. (laughs) To start with, what is this road tax Victoria had introduced? So, Dave, when people drive an electric car, one of the really cool things about them is that you don't have to use petrol anymore. So, I mean, like, that's great for the environment. It means your running costs are heaps cheaper when you actually buy the EV. But it also means that you no longer pay what's called the petrol excise. It's basically the tax that the federal government slaps on petrol. And so a couple of years ago, the Victorian government, um, interestingly, not the federal government, the state government decided to introduce a road user charge for electric, hydrogen and plug-in hybrid cars. So basically, drivers had to pay 2.8 cents for every kilometre that they drove. It was a little bit less for hybrids, um, but basically, yeah, 2.8 cents for EV drivers for every kilometre. And what would happen is that the drivers had to send a photo of their odometer once a year for it to be calculated. Right. Okay. And what happens if they didn't do that? So they could have their rego cancelled. And actually, Mm. a couple of hundred people did have their regos cancelled or you could get it averaged. I think it was like they would assume you drove 13,000 kilometres and just calculate it. But some people had actually had their um, their regos cancelled and didn't even know. So that was pretty controversial as well. Yeah, that's crazy. It definitely was a tax that was controversial. What are some of the other reasons behind that? Oh, yeah. Look, it was so controversial. A lot of people actually called it the worst EV policy in the world. So that gives you an idea. Oh. Um, but the main reason it was so controversial is because... On one hand, governments are trying to make it more affordable for people to switch to electric vehicles. And so putting an extra tax on them is just a major disincentive and kind of contradictory. Um, A lot of people called it just a pretty blatant tax grab. That's what some of the lawyers were saying today. Also, Victoria has really strong climate targets. They're aiming to halve emissions by 2030, so the end of the decade. And Australia has climate, you know, we all have climate targets now that um, all jurisdictions have to meet. But in Australia, our transport emissions are actually going up. So we need to speed up the shift to EVs if we're going to meet those targets. And one fifth of our emissions come from transport. So it's actually really important that we do this. And so a lot of EV drivers felt like they were being penalised for trying to do the right thing. Like, I saw some, there were some really pissed off drivers, Dave, I will say. Like, um, I saw someone when they had to submit a photo of their odometer, they actually wrote on the smart screen on their car, this EV tax is bullshit on the smart screen next to the odometer. And like a lot of people were protesting. So yeah, it it was very controversial. Yeah. And we're hearing from a lot of people now saying, you know, how counterintuitive this seems if you're trying to get more people to take up EVs. We've actually got someone on the line now, Jake's with us. Jake, like you work at a car dealership. What do you reckon of, of what's happened today? I reckon it's great that the uh, gov- uh, that the high courts told them that they've got to get rid of that tax. It's uh, it's going to push EV sales through the roof again. It's has, it, has it been pretty awkward trying to sell EVs when there's been this tax that you've got to tell people about? Yeah, it certainly pushes them away from like plug-in hybrids and plug-in electric cars just because you've got to say, well, per the kilometre, you get taxed on it. But with your 
hybrid generation hybrids, you don't pay any tax on them at all, like your, uh, your, like your RAV4s and all that. They all work off uh, braking regeneration, uh, and you don't pay tax on that. But In- on the plug-in hybrids, you do. Interesting. And it just it t- takes people back the entire wrong way. They go, well, I don't want that. I want to, especially in the country areas, want to buy diesel then. Yeah, I can imagine, Jake. Uh, interesting viewpoint there from someone who works at a car dealership. Hey, thanks for calling in. Let's go back to Joe Lauder now, who's been following what's been happening in the High Court with this announcement. Joe, what happened in the High Court today? So two Victorian EV drivers went to the High Court and they argued that this tax was unconstitutional. They said it was unconstitutional for the Victorian government to charge them. Interestingly as well, the federal government was actually backing them in the case. And the argument was basically that the road tax is an excise. And an excise is a tax on goods that we consume or use. And only the Commonwealth can implement these And Victoria, on the other hand, claimed that it was a tax on an activity, which is apparently something that the states can charge. And so in the end, it came down, um, four of the seven high court judges were basically like, yeah, it's a, we think it's an excise. And so that's the end of the road user tax for now. Um, here's one of the lawyers who represented two of the drivers having a chat to the ABC today. Our clients are passionate electric vehicle drivers. They're passionate about the benefits of electric vehicles. And so when Victoria introduced this tax, they were devastated uh, because they saw this tax as a barrier to improving air quality and um, helping the climate. Interesting. So, Joe, pretty massive win for EV drivers. What does it mean going forward? Yeah, look, this is a constitutional law case, but the ramifications will go way further than just this case and just Victoria because it sets a really interesting precedent around other states. Um, New South Wales and WA were both set to introduce a similar road user charge in 2027. Interestingly as well, South Australia was actually the first state to announced that they were going to introduce this, but it hadn't come into effect. And they'd already backflipped on it as part of an election promise. And all the states and territories were actually backing Victoria against the federal government and these drivers in the case. But beyond that as well, some people are saying that this precedent actually kind of throws into question a whole bunch of other taxes that the states charges because they've come down on this, it's an excise, not a tax. So yeah. that's interesting too. I wonder what what kind of other taxes, like what, what, what does it mean for, for some of the other ones? Um, big caveat, I'm not a constitutional tax lawyer, but some that I've seen today as well, like ones that um, people were discussing, experts, car rego and waste levies are a couple of examples of ones that could, I don't know, potentially we could see some debate around going forward. Interesting. Uh, what does this mean, like that EV drivers get to use the roads and they don't have to pay? Is that what we're saying here? Yeah, this is really an interesting point going forward because... To start with, the fuel excise is collected by the federal government, not the states. And then that money goes into a general pool that's used for everything. So it's not like these days that the fuel money goes straight into roads and that's all the money that goes into roads. And actually, you know, if you're a taxpaying citizen, even if you don't drive a car, your money does go towards roads. But um, also some people in the EV industry have been saying today when we look at this, like we need to consider the cost of emissions that come from these cars. So when we're talking about costs, we actually need to think about the cost of that pollution when we think about overall costs. But um, 
where it leaves us is that all the states and the government, the federal government, are going to have to try and work out what is going to replace the fuel excise once that revenue stream dries up, because that is going to leave a hole in the budget. And this is probably going to push them to introduce a national approach. So it's not going to be state by state, and it'll have to come from the federal government, and then potentially they'll re- redistribute it from there. So it's probably likely that going forward, we'll get some kind of road use charge at some point in the future, but it's probably going to be when there's no longer the issue of disincentivizing people from making the switch to EVs. Like that caller we heard, Jake, who was kind of like, if people are weighing it up, like, yeah, it's a disincentive at the moment. Of course. We're hearing from so many people on the text line, Joe. Someone says, well, it's not like the road tax is improving roads. That's what someone (laughs) says. Another person says, we've got an EV. I get that the money has to be replaced from the fuel excise somewhere. I just think that the proposal was positioned the wrong way. That was from Jackson. Another person says, cars, electric and even bicycles use our roads, but only petrol cars pay a tax. That's someone's message there. Another person says, there's no reason why EVs should be exempt from contributing to the roads they drive on. That was from Josh in Melbourne. And somebody else, EVs should be taxed at the federal level, get rid of fuel excise, move to distance-based charges for all vehicles administered by the states as part of annual rego and safety checks. Interesting. Joe. what's been the reaction from drivers? Yeah, the big question now going forward that we don't actually know just yet is um, a lot of drivers want to get a refund for paying for this tax for a couple of years. Mm. So that'll be an interesting one. But um, yeah, I, I don't like I I'm I'm on a couple of Facebook groups for stories about this. I don't have an EV, but people are pretty stoked. I will say I think um, and looking you know interested in what's going to happen going forward. Like we said, um, that text probably something more national and uniform and consistent, so it doesn't quite pit different types of cars against each other going forward. Well, hey, we do appreciate you being across at Hack Reporter Joe Lauder. Thank you very much for filling us in. Thanks, Dave. I got another message. Someone says, they say they're trying to make it more affordable to use electric cars, but there's no way I'm going to be able to afford to buy an electric car anytime soon. Hey, yeah, it's a big issue for a lot of people. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.